Now in those days, Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill of Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine. But she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. After about four months, her husband set out for Bethlehem to speak personally with her and persuade her to come back. He took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. When he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. But this time, the man was determined to leave. So he took his two saddled donkeys and his concubine and headed into the direction of Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. It was late in the day when they neared Jebus, and the man's servant said to him, Let's stop at this Jebusite town and spend the night there. No, his master said, we can't stay in this foreign town where there are no Israelites. Instead, we will go on to Gibeah. Come on, let's try to get as fast as Gibeah, get as far as Gibeah or Ramah, and we will spend the night in one of those towns. So they went on. The sun was setting as they came to Gibeah, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. They rested in the town square but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man came from his work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gibeah, where the people were from the tribe of Benjamin. When he saw the travelers sitting in the town square, he asked them where they were from and where they were going. We've been in Bethlehem and Judah, the man replied. We're on our way to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. I traveled to Bethlehem, and now I'm returning home, but... No one's taking us in for the night. Even though we have everything we need, we have straw and feed for our donkeys and plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. You're welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I'll give you anything you might need. But whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys. After they washed their feet, they ate and drank together. While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, Bring out the man who's staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing will be shameful. Here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I'll bring them out to you, and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen to him, so the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and laid there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go. But there was no answer, so he put her body on his donkey and took her home. When he got home, he took a knife and he cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has, has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome text to preach this morning. Amen. Thanks, thanks be to the Lord for this words of uh, awesomeness that we're going to conclude uh, 
book of Judges with uh, last week when the elder Dave Grigg talked about, oh, I'm, thank God that I'm not preaching on this text because there's no hope here. I promise you there is hope here somewhere. Uh, but today we're going to conclude the book of Judges. Um, as we conclude this chapter, we're going to look forward to what God's going to do in this life as well. Uh, good morning, Christ Central Church. Good morning. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad you could join us. And before I delve into this, just to remind you again, you probably heard this, next week starts our summer schedule, and summer schedule means we're going to start our worship at 10.30 a.m. So you could sleep in a little bit if you want to, but if you come at 10 o'clock, that's great too, right, at Christ Central time. You could always come, but not only are we going to start at 10.30, but if you come 30 minutes earlier, we're going to have time of intentional time of studying the Word together, where our Kids, our youth have intentional time of engaging with one another. So yes, one option is for you to sleep in 30 minutes later and come at 10.30 for worship time. Another option is for you to wake up 30 minutes earlier to get here to build community together. And I know, confident that all of us are going to wake up 30 minutes earlier. Amen? amen. All right. If you said amen, I'm going to see you at 9.30. Amen? amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. With that in mind, we're going to delve into Book of Judges, and I promise you, next week, we're not going to be in Judges, right? It'll be in something else. Um, the way this text concludes, the last verse that we read, is a definition of what Judges is all about. As we see the abuse of women, the sexual assault, the mass rape, the degrading of a society at large, so horrific, we shudder and wonder, how does this belong to God's plan of redemption we have this emotion of anger, um, this emotion of thinking like this is not the way the God's chosen people coming out of Israel in the land of Canaan was supposed to be. As the last verse of Judges concludes this very well where it says, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And you conclude and you amen with this writer saying, yeah, this is exactly what's happening here. And it's not that Israel needed a king to lead them to battles because we see God is the king that they needed, but they needed a king figure to lead them in their covenant faithfulness, promise-keeping. Without this leadership, the people, the society, the world as they know it was in chaos and disarray. Hence the title of our sermon today, Imperfect People, Imperfect Society, imperfect world in need of a perfect savior. One of the most inhumane atrocities done against women in history was usage of comfort women. Comfort women were women forcibly abducted by the Japanese imperialist army during the Sino-Japanese War, or for some of you, um, World War II, that you're more familiar with during this time. In 1937, this was when it began, to provide comfort, comfort, and I put it in quotation for a purpose, because they were sold into sex trade and sex services of soldiers during the war. Yes, the studies and the recent evidence show that during uh, conflicts, the people that get hurt the most are the most vulnerable, right? The women and the children. Um, and this comfort woman was so horrendous not only because that's normally what happens, but this was organized and carried out by the imperial government itself. 
over 50,000 to 200,000. They don't know exactly how many because they didn't keep accurate count. Of course, they're abusing people. They're not going to keep count of how many people have abused. From Philippines, Korea, China were kidnapped, forced to travel far off distant lands, and suffered. Even today, they are not officially recognized by the Japanese government, and their refusal to properly repent and seek forgiveness fuels regional hatred and mistrust amongst the countries in Asia. What we read in Judges today, church, reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun. If you see sin happening today, you recognize it's been happening all along. People's hearts are depraved. We also recognize the Bible is not just full of moral stories filled with the blessings of God, right? We also see that people are corrupt. People are fallen. The Bible is full of real depiction of our society, our world. And as we are living in this world, what we see is a glimpse of what life can be like if you are apart from God. The extent of our sin and how it will lead us to destruction is often shown through our scripture. And scripture is appealed to you to say, you need Christ. Apart from him, you're headed towards this type of destruction. And we find this in Judges, the conclusion by saying that everyone did whatever they thought right in their eyes. And perhaps you may say, well, pastor, that's actually exactly the world that we live in today. Right? If you look at the political turmoil that is happening, the denial of truth, the seeking after the fake news, the mistrust, the hatred, all that we see happening in the world today is not that much different than what the writer of Judges is writing about, isn't it? And just like the comfort woman during the World War II, when these conflicts happen, when society that resorts to violence and evil, the one who suffers the most are the weak, the poor, the powerless. And quite often in the society that you and I live today, these people are those who are marginalized, either socioeconomically, ethnically, sexually, based upon their gender. And that's what we see in this text today, in this chaotic world in Judges, in the midst of shame, anger, vengeance, violence, what gets lost is the most vulnerable. What gets left behind are the women who are assaulted, abused, and cast aside as commodity. And that's what judges show us this morning. Amen? And the question is, what can we learn? What, can, what is the hope that we could find in this besides the warning in itself? With that in mind, let's delve into this text. Two points today. First is as bad as it gets, and second, as far as the curse is found. The first point we see from this text is as bad as it gets. Two of the more famous philosophers of modern time is John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, who influenced the formation of politics and government today. Locke believed in humanity that appeals to the reason, while Hobbes believed that when left alone, humanity has no moral compass to determine what is good and right. Either say you may fall, either side you may fall, but both sides believe the human nature it is in fact selfish in seeking what they want only. And you may say, well, pastor, I don't need philosophers to tell me that. Just stop by my home and watch my kids, right? Work in my workplace, and you realize that everything is driven by profit only. See my own heart this morning. 
Not only so, when you read the scripture of judges, we see that apart from God's grace, humanity falls into what we call a total depravity, right? As bad as it can get is what we see here. And before we delve into Judges 19 that we read today, we see Judges 17 and 18 that seems to give us an unrelated story of Micah and his mother, but this story, we didn't read due to the time, gives you a short synopsis or the summary of what is really happening around the time that this chapter 19 is happening. In chapter 17 through 18, I'm going to give you a short summary of this. Micah is someone who stole money from his own mother. And you're thinking, wow, that's not good. And the mother gets so angry, right? So she curses the someone who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from her. Well, the story tells us Micah, perhaps feeling guilty, tells his mom, Mom, I did it, right? I stole it. I'm so sorry. I did it. Right? And guess what his mom does? Mom says, bless you. That's awesome that you admitted to your wrongdoing. Wow, now because of that, I'm going to dedicate money that was returned to me and I give it to the Lord. And by now, you're thinking, wow, that's a horrible parenting. Now, you're not just calling him out, but you're saying, thank God that you, the money that stole from me, you return it, praise the Lord, that now I'm going to dedicate you to the Lord for all the things you've done. Not only she does that, she only takes 200, not the entire amount, 200 out of 1,100 servers and makes a carved image of God and sets it up in her house. And guess what she does? She sets one of her sons as Micah's personal priest. Don't go to that for parenting advices, right? And at this point, you have to think, that's crazy. What is going on in the world today, in the world that she was living in? What would drive her to do that? And the writer of Judges tell us why in chapter 17, verse 6. He says, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And of course, they basically did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. Micah, nor Micah's mother, has any sense of true authority or God's way in her hearts. So they do whatever they think is right in their own eyes. And the story gets worse. The chapter continues to tell us that one day, a Levite is traveling through and meets Micah, and Micah says, great, a Levite is here. Will you be my personal priest? And this Levite says, sure, that sounds good. You pay for me, and I'll live here. I'll be your personal priest. Now, Micah must have thought, I got a Levite. Levite, if you recall, are the tribe of the priests. Aaron, the high priest, remember him? That is the descendants. He's a Levite. Now, Micah is saying, I got a legitimate priest, Levite priest with me. And this is what Micah says in chapter 17, verse 12 and 13. So Micah installed the Levite as his personal priest, and he lived in Micah's house, and he says, I know the Lord will bless me now, Micah said, because I have a Levite serving as my priest. He's doing whatever he thinks right in his eyes. And you think that's worse. It gets worse than this. When we get to chapter 18, we're introduced to a tribe of Dan, a tribe has more money than more territory than Micah, a single person. So this tribe persuades this Levite to say, hey, won't you come and not only be a priest of one person, but won't you be a priest for an entire tribe? And of course, Levi's like, sure, that sounds great. I can pay more. I get more distinction. I'm going to go with you. So now they go off with them. And Micah is like now thinking, where's my Levite? And chases after the 
the Danites and say, why are you doing this to me? And Danites like, all right, yeah, yeah, I'll show you. You see this? That means go home, right? So Micah is thinking, okay, just by himself, a tribe. So he says, I got nothing. I can't do anything. You're bigger than me. You're stronger than me. So he goes away, and this is what he says in chapter 18, verse 24. What do you mean? What's the matter? Micah replied, you have taken away all gods that I have made, my priest, and I have nothing left. This is conclusion he comes to in his life. Basically, chapter 17 and 18 tells us the moral ground Israel was standing on during the time of Judges when everyone did what was right in their eyes. Chapter 17 and 18 gives us a backdrop of what is happening. Micah's mother's violation of creating an image of God is a direct violation of second commandment of God. Not to make God's image and create a God's idol. Sometimes we really struggle with this because we understand the first commandment when it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You're like, that's clear. I get that. We should have only one God. But what about the second commandments? Why can we not have an image of God that we could bow down to and be a representative of who God is? Well, the reason why the second commandment is so strong is oftentimes when we make a carved image of God, we can't capture the entire image of God, right? Because you can't really put God in a box. So when you often hear things like, God cannot possibly be judgmental, He is so loving, you're putting a limit on who God is. That's putting a carved image of God, saying like, God can be so judgmental, but God cannot, therefore, God cannot be so judgmental because God is so loving. Well, the scripture tells us God is so loving, yet God has to be judgmental because he's so holy. And scripture holds that intention and allows God to be God. When we put that distinction on God, you're putting a card image of God on the ultimate being of the universe. And that's what exactly Micah's mother does by putting a card image of God, a picture of God that doesn't fully capture who God is. Michael also gets a Levite and thinks now he's blessed, and I call the ancient Near Eastern version of prosperity gospel. Because here, Micah, who tries to control God, makes God a genie in a bottle and saying, like, because I did this, God must bless me, right? I show up on Sunday, I'll go to Bible studies, I'll volunteer, so bless me now, Lord. You forget the essence of the gospel. And finally, when Micah declares, I have nothing left, when his idols are taken away, and that's often the end result of idolatry, isn't it? As one pastor wrote, when you shrink God down to a size that you can control, you always live in fear of losing him. But when you surrender to the true God, you quit worrying about losing him because who knows? He will, uh, because we all know that he will never lose you. Church, that's the backdrop as we delve into chapter 19. The picture of the imperfect people, imperfect society, and imperfect world the Israelites were living in gives us chapter 19 and 21's backdrop, and it is no wonder that this is happening. So we delve into chapter 19. It says, when in those days Israel had no king, there was a man from the tribe of Levi living in the remote area of hill country Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem into Judah to be. We're expecting to hear his wife, but it doesn't say his wife. It says concubine. Right? We're told that Levite has a concubine, doesn't treat her right. Something happens where she gets angry to leave him. Many commentators think that it's due to Levite's infidelity rather than concubine's 
infidelity. Although some of your ESV translations will say concubine was unfaithful in your Bibles, but it could be that she was unfaithful in leaving him because he was unfaithful to her. So Levi goes back to get her, not out of love, because he doesn't go immediately after her. It says perhaps four months later he goes after her, perhaps because he desires the sex with his concubine again, or perhaps he sees her as a commodity, and the latter is probably true, as we see in a little bit. In verse 3, when he says, speak personally to her to persuade her, and some of your translation will say, speak to her heart. And you may be thinking, wow, he's trying to win her back. Absolutely not. Right? Because in the Bible, oftentimes the heart isn't a place of emotion. He's not going there to be like, ooh, come back, please, I love you. That's not what he's doing. Oftentimes, the Bible portrays the heart as a place of reason appealing to her mind. So it makes, and so he goes to make an appeal to concubine to say, as a woman, as a concubine, it is better for you to be with me than live with your father. And you will see that because the father is so happy to see this guy and invites him over and says, please come and dine with me and take her back. Please dine with me and take her back. Furthermore, when we get to the portion of the story, when he runs into a crowded mob that wants him for their sexual gain, do you notice that? They want him. They don't want the concubine. They want him to have sex with. Um, he gives up his concubine for their pleasure and his own safety. And you know what it says in verse 27? It says, when her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands and threshold. He said, get up. Let's go. But there was no answer, so he put her body on his donkey and took her home. Again, in your, some of your translations in ESV, it is more aptly translated that it's not her husband who got up the next day. It says her master got up the next day to distinguish the relationship there. It wasn't husband-wife, as NLT describes here. In the original Greek, it says he rose meaning he was sleeping all night long as his concubine, his wife, was molested, raped all night. He slept through the night. He does not care for her safety. So when he finds out that he is dead, rather than properly honoring her by burial, as it was custom of the day, he butchers her body like an animal and calls for war. Not to take vengeance out of love for her, but out of his own desire for blood, for dishonor that he has received. And again, everyone in this Levite did whatever he wanted and he thought he deserved. In chapter 20, when they ask him, why are we going to war? And this is what he says to them, conveniently leaving out all the details of his action. This is what he says in chapter 20, verse 4. The Levite, the husband of the woman who had been murdered, said, My concubine and I came to spend the night in Gibeah, a town that belonged to people of Benjamin. That night, some of the leading citizens of Gibeah surrounded the house, planning to kill me. We're like, wait, wait, that's not what they're trying to do. They just want to try to have sex with you. But he leaves that out, right? And they raped my concubine until she was dead. So I cut her body into 12 pieces and sent the pieces throughout the territory assigned to Israel. For these men have committed a terrible and shameful crime. Now then all of you, the entire community of Israel, must decide here and now what should be done about this. You're like, wait, you're telling a completely different story. Tammy Schreiner, a Jewish theologian, writes, and the fact how quickly he was willing to send her out to the mob seems to indicate that it was an opportunity, rather, that he was seeking, and the vengeance was already in his mind. And it turns out exactly as it sounds, church. 
we didn't get to read this in chapter 20 and verse 21, but Israelites go to battle and almost kills the entire tribe by civil war. And there's no mention of an outside enemy in this chapter. And to make amends for this crazy war, they end up kidnapping 600 of their women as well and rapes them to fix the issue that they created. As one commentator wrote, sin begets sin. A rape of one woman leads to abduction and rape of 600 women at the hands of the Israelites themselves. And if any point in the scripture shows us how depraved humanity can be, perhaps these chapters show us to that extent this is as bad as it can be. And again, as a church, as followers of Christ, when we see this type of story being told, you and I should be furious. We should be appalled that these are happening. How can God's people, God's chosen people, fall into this type of sin? How dare do they let this type of atrocity happen to God's people by their own hands? And as we have this righteous anger alongside all who are listening to this story, we must also examine ourselves. This story is calling us to look inwardly to our hearts, to our people, to our society, to our world, to our church today. How often we have put God in an image that we want God to be. Meaning, although you and I may not attempt to make a blatant idols in the image of God and to say, this is God that I worship only, but how often we try to, to guard aspects of God's character that we like and say, this is God that we want, not everything else with it. But we want God to be like this, but not this, because that's not something I want. For example, how often we Christians stand and fight over what is being taught in our schools and willing to call out evils of abortion. Mind you, important matters, we must educate our children, and we are pro-life. We're a whole life church in valuing human body and life. But how often we're so comfortable standing up for those truths at the same time as we see our women squashed in their voice, as we often let the redlining of the city continue on, as we often turn a blind eye to the racial injustice and the migrants that are ill-treated at the borders. How often in the name of Christianity we stand for certain issues, we fight for them, but we turn a blind eye to issues that don't impact us. How often in the name of Christ we call out sin of homosexuality and abortion, but we turn a blind eye to domestic abuse, sexual assault, rape, adultery, molestation of children, inequity in education, food, and basic living. How dare they we stand before God and say, God, I'm here to worship you with all my hands, raise and say, I stand for this truth, while we let injustice happening to our neighbors go by unpunished. How often have we heard the world question the goodness of God? Perhaps it is not God who is put on trial here. Perhaps it is our witness of this God that is on trial our depiction of who God is being questioned, uh, idols of morality, false Christian nationalism, a gender-driven picture of the gospel is being questioned instead. 
or how we as Christians pursue our version of prosperity gospel, saying, look, we do what is right, we teach what is right, we do all this, now God, you must bless my church and bless me and my family and my nation. We in this corner doing all this right, even dedicating all that is good, but we forget the heart of Christianity is not blessing of an end itself, but love of God and love of our neighbors, often followed by the sufferings giving up of ourselves. Are we, Church of Christ, marked by this kind of love, this kind of suffering? Well, Church of Christ, as we read into Judges, the question is, what is our witness in the world today to the imperfect society, imperfect world? Is our picture of Christianity false picture of perfection? Or rather, are we picturing imperfect people needing, desperately crying out for true king to come to guide us towards his grace? Do you recognize our sin is infinitely offensive to God of the universe? Even one of our sin, our complacency, our blind, our ignorance, our hatred are just as offensive to God as any other sin out there, perhaps even more so knowing what you know. It is deserving of death. Our sin placed Christ violently on the cross as you're sitting here this morning. That's what judges tell us. No amount of Christianese that you and I do can justify our Savior's blood on the cross. So what do you do? church. What do you do when your sin are laid bare before God of the universe? You know what this comfort woman wants more than anything? What they want is not reparations. They don't, they're not only seeking um, acknowledgement, service, but what this comfort woman has sought throughout their life of activism is true repentance, sincere remorse, and turning of the heart that leads to action. Apostle Peter, after preaching on sin, said this to the crowd in Acts chapter 2. So let everyone in Israel know certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, you crucified, he says, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him, to one other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And this is what Peter said. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Church, I believe that's where we begin this morning. Repent, O saints of God. You, me, us, the church, God's people, repent and turn from evil from our sin of segregation, our injustice, our ignorance, seeking God for forgiveness. And that's where we begin. May you be at a church that constantly call you to repent and turn back to the Lord. Amen? Amen. And as we begin there, we can begin there. You know why? Because as bad as it gets, we find that God's grace flows as far as the curse is found as far as curse is found. The Joy to the World is one of my favorite songs too, a song that we love to sing during Christmas time. But the song is actually not only for Christmas time, it is for everyday singing, especially when we find hopelessness 
in the time of judges like this. This beloved hymn, Joy to the World, is based on Psalm 98, which declares the creation's joy when the Lord comes to judge. It speaks actually of Christ's second coming. My favorite line is the verse 3 where it says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow, and he says, As far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. The reversal of the curse is promised in coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of his promise. As one theologian writing about him writes, we live in light of that promise. Even as we look back to Bethlehem and as we celebrate Christmas, we look forward to the hope of Christ that is to come. As the far as curse is found, grace abounds that much more. And you may be thinking, Pastor, that's not what we get in the book of Judges. Do you know what the last verse of Judges is? It's not like, all right, guys, you're really, really bad, but Christ is coming, right? That's what you're hoping for. But this is what it says in chapter 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Amen, right? We're like, okay, wow, there's no hope in that. Where is this? And that's how it ends. But thank the Lord that Judges is not only the book in the Bible, Right? It is one of the books. If you don't know that, just flip through, right? There's different books there. And if you turn to the very next chapter, you find the book of Ruth. And you know what it says in chapter 1, verse 1? In the days when the judges ruled Israel, the book of Ruth is told this great story that you and I love so much, that we teach our children so much. Like, let's learn about Ruth. We name our children after Ruth. We forget in verse 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled Israel. If we do justice to the story of Ruth, perhaps we should talk about chapter 19 and 21, right? Talking about how women are mistreated, gang-raped, cut up into pieces, and everyone goes to war. In those days, Ruth is here. Praise the Lord. And that's exactly what happens. Bible tells us in this crazy time when the judges ruled Israel, God is doing something. God is at work, perhaps not in the capital city, not in the spotlights, but in the background in the most dark places, when his own chosen people cannot do anything right, there is Israel's hope that is happening. There's hope in my brokenness, your hope in your brokenness, and that is what God is doing through Ruth in the next chapter. And this Ruth, ironically enough, is a woman who is not even an Israelite. She's a Gentile, an outsider. In addition, she's a widow. A Gentile widow was about as close to be at the bottom of the totem pole as one could possibly get at this time. But unlike the Israelites who goes to war, who kills their own tribes, doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes, we see Ruth trusting God in the face of the impossible odds against the wisdom of the days. She cries out, your God is my God. And where Judges ends with despair, the book of Ruth ends this way. In chapter 4, verse 21, Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. The story of Judges shows that Israel fails. But God was saved through one considered weak, like Ruth. And this king comes, not only David, the chosen king of Israel, but ultimately through the line of David, through Ruth, Christ the Messiah will come. And he doesn't come to us as a strong like Samson or as military generals like all the other generals. Rather, he will be poor, wanderer, outcast, rejected, but he comes to change our hearts so just like Ruth, you and I can place our trust 
in him. When we read the chapters in Judges, we are horrified by its atrocities and perversion of justice as we ought to be. But you know, this is not the most gruesome chapters we find in the Bible. As bad as Judges 19 through 21 can get, there's a lot more darkness that is to come in the Scripture. Do you know that? The most dark and gruesome story is told every Sunday at Christ Central Church and many churches around the world. And oftentimes we get dressed up for this. We bring out nice spring dresses for this event. This most gruesome story that we could ever find in the Scripture is told every Passion Week on the Easter Sunday. The most gruesome, distorted section of the Bible is the crucifixion of our Savior, the Messiah, the God in the Gospels. Jesus on the cross was beaten so bad, they say he was barely recognizable. He was mocked, humiliated, stripped. Nails were hammered through his body. The craziest, the injustice, most inhumane punishment, most bloody, brutal scene is depicted in the gospel story. He endures through the darkness. He endures the cross for our offenses, our sins. And here is our Savior, our King, rather than sending out his bride to face the torture and assault, and rather than cutting her up into pieces. What we find is Christ himself giving himself to be cut off for us so that he could redeem us as his bride to make us pure. And that love on the cross transforms us, renews us, brings us back to grace. So upon our repentance and receiving this grace, we're now ready to go and re-engage the world, to preach the gospel, to live it, to share it, to be a witness of this great love for God, love for others, because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. And church, if ever any reason for you and I to gather, to sit through a worship service, to gather together, this is why. And church, this is who you are. Our mission of our church is freeing people to enjoy God, hear his truth, grow in diverse community, and engage the world with renewed dignity that comes from Christ. It is not for you to come to check off boxes. It is not for your children to be only be educated. It is not only even, as we talk about finding community, to make friends. It's not only for you to feel good about being at church. Our mission and vision is to be free by the gospel grace. So in our repentance, you and I are freed. So when we are freed, we can now in response enjoy God, grow together as a response to that, and grow in a diverse community because we want to do that. People often say, like, why does your church focus so much on women? Why does your church focus so much on racial injustice? Why do you talk about all those things when you just preach the gospel? And I tell them, yeah, I am. Isn't it? If you preach the gospel, if you're free to enjoy God, wouldn't you want to talk about elevating woman's voice? Wouldn't you want to talk about racial injustice? Wouldn't you want to talk about all those issues people tend to shy away from? Because the gospel speaks to that. If you're truly preaching the gospel, living it out, and being a witness in this world, you can help but to be influenced into the world that God is calling us to love. So if you preach the gospel, church, right? If you preach the gospel and you repent of that truth, then you are free now to hear his truth, to grow together, and to re-engage the world with the renewed dignity, dignity that does not come from you, but from Christ in Christ alone. As far as the curse is found, the grace abounds that much more. The gospel light is showing in all parts, 
in the church, in our cubicles, in our homes, in our nations. We're called to go because God's finished work on the cross for our sins compels us to testify to that truth. And church, you know what is promised here? What we find is that God does not give up on God's people. God does not give up on Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, despite their sin. Christ is sent in the book of Revelation. Twelve tribes are mentioned. When Christ returns, all the tribes are there. Despite the atrocities of Israelites, God does not give up on his people. And that promise is for us too. When we get to Revelation chapter 9, this is what it says. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. Not to get lost in the beauty of the multi-ethnic vision of God's bride is that you will, God will get everyone. Did you hear that? Every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic, ethnos, ethnicities. God promised in Genesis 12, God will do it. That's the promise. That's our end goal. Despite what we see in the world, despite the divisions, the sin effect of it, and promise says, I will have every tribe, every tongue, every nation worship my name. That's what you get to be part of, church. Amen? That's the hope you hold on to. And you worship the Lord by singing this song. This was written by Charles Spurgeon in Morning and Evening for this morning. He says, I love you, Lord, with no love of mine, for I have none to give. I love you, Lord, for all the love is yours, for by your love I live. I am as nothing and rejoice to be, emptied and lost and swelled up in you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer this morning as we come. Despite what we see in the book of Judges, we find hope. We find hope because in Christ, you have paid the penalty of our sins. And by that grace, we come confidently, knowing that despite the struggles that we see today, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.